Guide my words. Show us your truth. Do so, Father, in a way that reveals to ourselves, to each of us in our own way, how we may follow you with greater strength of heart, mind, soul, and spirit, and in all the focus that we have in our given walk of life, Father. Let us be servants in that walk of life. Use the text this morning to show us those things, and I also ask, Father, that we would have the patience and the focus as we listen this morning to be mindful that we've been called into this place for a reason, whether to be here for an extended period of time or only for a short time. But we would not see it as happenstance, but rather the hand of God at work. So let us be receptive to all you plan to do with our time here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, Genesis 17 is where we're at this morning, still in the story of Abram. In today's chapter, we're going to see for the fourth time God appearing to Abram. And the occasion for this visitation is similar to all the previous that we've studied so far, God's covenant, God's covenant with Abram. But today, God is ready to bring Abram the full revelation of his covenant, now to include a sign And in this sign, God brings a new covenant. We have to unravel some things this morning if we're going to understand all that's going on. And if you know this chapter at all, particularly parents, if you've read through this chapter, you know there's a topic in this chapter that could give rise to some questions later, uh, if there's any young ones in the room. And if so, I just want you to be prepared. I don't plan to go into any detail on this topic, uh, except as it applies to the text this morning. But I just want to alert you that it is there. And by the way, just so you know, I resisted the urge to go into many different areas of humor related to this topic. Let's go to the first verse of chapter 17. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, I want to pause there. Starting off with the age, Abram is 99 now, and that tells us some things about where this moment falls in the story of Abram generally. By that count, it has now been 24 years since Abram was called out of Ur by God originally and sent to the promised land, what will be the promised land. And it's been 13 years since his son Ishmael came along by his union with Hagar. So Ishmael is now 13 at this point. It turns out that Ishmael's age, this age of 13, will come to explain God's timing here for his fourth appearance, as we'll see later in this chapter next week. For now, just understand, it's just been an extended period of time since the last time the story of Abram has given us any detail. Now, in this chapter, chapter 17, there are 27 verses, and all but eight of them are quotes of God talking. All but eight. This, then, therefore, is the longest speech by God in all of Genesis. This chapter is almost entirely God talking to Abram. And as such, it is the zenith, the high point of God's revelation to Abram concerning his promises. God will begin to speak less and less to Abram after this point. In fact, generally speaking, God speaks less and less throughout the book of Genesis after this point. And apart from the giving of the law to Moses, he speaks less and less and less in this direct form. This becomes a somewhat of a high point in God's appearing before men. For now, I want you to look at what God says to Abram as he opens in this chapter, as he makes this fourth appearance. He begins by identifying himself as El Shaddai, 
That's what the words in Hebrew are behind God Almighty. El Shaddai. This is the first time God has used this term in the Bible, the first time he's described himself this way. Eventually it will be used 48 times in the Old Testament. In Hebrew it comes from a root word which means power or strength. But the word Shaddai itself actually doesn't originate in the Hebrew language. It originates in an ancient language from the region. It's an Akkadian word, A-K-K-A-D-I-A-N, Akkadian. The word is Shadu in Akkadian, and it literally means breast, like a woman who would breastfeed a child. And so when you take the original meaning of the word and you move it now into Hebrew with this connotation of power, taken together it means the God who provides strength to his children, a, a strength that nourishes and, and strengthens through that, ex, that exchange of power, if you will. Now, since God's last appearance to Hagar in the desert, we've had 13 years go by. And in those 13 years, God has said, we assume, nothing to Abram. And now as he appears, what must have seemed like out of the blue again to Abram, he calls himself El Shaddai, a name that emphasizes two things. First, God provides strength. The source of the strength that God's children rest in is God. And he does so in keeping with his promises. If he promises something, he provides it. I'm fond of saying to people who feel any call or any desire to enter ministry in any form, the one whom God calls, he also equips. There is no such thing as the calling of God apart from an equipping by grace. He doesn't call you to do something and then stand to the side and watch you fail at it because you didn't have the power, the, the skill, or the knowledge to do it. Quite the opposite. He'll call people who don't have the power, the skill, or the knowledge to do something so that when he equips them to meet that call, it's evidently God at work. They don't get the credit. He does. So the first thing he's saying to Abram as he makes this initial appearance is, I'm the God with the strength you need. And then the second thing God seems to be saying is in a bit of a chastisement to Abram. He was misguided in his attempt to find strength in his own body to deliver the promises God made earlier. So when he went to Hagar and tried to form a child that way, he was relying on whose strength? Well, not God's, but his own. When God appears and says, I am the God who provides and nourishes by my strength, I think he's telling Abram, you tried in the wrong way. And here I am now, after 13 years, to reveal to you how the real work will be done. Now he tells Abram, in the second line I read, walk before me and be blameless. In Hebrew here, the words really are much more personal. They mean, come before me. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's literally, before my face. The word face is actually there. So he's saying, come before me. In God's case, we know that this doesn't literally mean that Abram would stand before God's face because to see God's face is to, to die in our sinful state. So it, it's meant more symbolically or metaphorically. It means present yourself before me in the way that a servant is presenting himself before a master. That's the intonation of it in Hebrew. So a servant would be called before their master, but then that implies something further, doesn't it? It implies that he's waiting for instruction. He's come to serve. He's come to be told what to do. That's how Abram is called now by God. El Shaddai says, stand before me, ready for my next instructions. Stand before me to serve me. And then he says, be blameless. What a wonderful biblical word, blameless. This is the same word Moses wrote when he described Noah in chapter 6, back at the beginning of the flood story, when he said, Noah found favor with God and he was a blameless man. 
In Genesis 6, we said favor is the word chesed in Hebrew. It means grace. Noah found grace. And so he was blameless, which was a reflection of Noah's righteousness before God on the basis of faith. Here as well, God tells Abram, be blameless. Now you have to remember, this is the first time God has spoken to Abram since he married Hagar. And in light of that, these words must have been powerful for Abram. Try to think what Abram was thinking. And though we may be wrong because we're making some guesses here, it's not, it's not out of reason, knowing human nature, to assume some things about what he must have felt. In those intervening 13 years, can we not imagine Abram wondering at times along the way as his thoughts turned to Hagar and to his decision to marry Hagar and now to have this son Ishmael? Did his thoughts ever turn to, I wonder if God is happy about this. I wonder if this is what he wanted. Maybe I, I shouldn't have done this. Did he, did he feel some guilt along the way, do you think? Did he wonder if God was upset at him? I mean, considering the fact that God hadn't spoken to him in 13 years, is there any chance maybe he was wondering, God, are you being quiet because you've left? Are you being quiet because you, you're mad at me? I mean, what do, what do wives and husbands do to one another when they're a little upset? The silent treatment, right? You know when something's wrong because the person doesn't talk, which is the reason they're not talking is so that you'll know. And what must he have felt then when he heard God come before him, declaring, You are my servant, come before me and serve me. You're still my servant, I'm still your master. And be blameless. Now look at that word carefully. He didn't say, be perfect. He didn't say, be sinless. Not that God doesn't wish for those things, but he didn't command those things because he knows they're out of our reach in this life. No, he said, be blameless. Not sinless, Not perfect, just blameless. We serve our master, Christ, by the same terms under a similar covenant based in the same promises that God gave Abram. And we know God has made promises to provide for us now and to give us something in eternity. We have these same understandings as Abram did. Yet, like Abram, don't we all at times go off on our own? Doing things without God. Sometimes convincing ourselves it's helping God, but yet it's sin, leaving him behind, in other words. And we may go weeks or months or, dare I say, years feeling like we're not hearing from God, like he's not with us, like he's not talking to us anymore, like it's as if we're just on our own. And in those dark seasons, we might even begin to question Are you just so unhappy with me that you're bringing all these bad things and you're not talking to me through them and you're not helping me understand them because you're mad at me? Is that it? And then we read these lines and we're reminded that God is, number one, faithful to his promise, and number two, willing to call us blameless because someone else took the blame. Christ. And we are not sinless, but we do not carry the blame and therefore we are still his servant even when we go off and do things without him. From that perspective, God now appears and says to Abram, you are still my servant, be blameless, I have a new command for you. Like Paul says, not looking at what came behind but pressing onward. And in verse 2 he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face. And God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. Now, if you're paying close attention to the text, as I hope you are, you probably noticed something curious in what I just read. 
God starts by telling Abram he will establish between Abram and God a covenant and multiply him exceedingly. Now, at first glance, you may assume this is the same covenant we've been studying from the beginning, going back to chapter 12, right? The one that he announced in 12, the one that he confirmed in 15 and echoed the whole way through, the one that had that ritual, the one that promises that he'll have many descendants. But when you look closely at the language, it can't be the same covenant. I mean, look at it. It speaks of a different covenant. First, the language is in the future tense. And not just in English. It's, it's in future in English because it's in future tense also in the Hebrew. He says, I will establish something with you. So this is something that is yet to happen. And then the covenant is between me and you. Now that's an entirely new phrase. That has never shown up yet before in any of the prior moments where God appeared and gave the covenant to Abram. This is new. And the term in Hebrew has a very certain meaning. It implies that both parties have a role in keeping the covenant. It talks to not a one-way suzerainty covenant. It talks to a two-way covenant of parity or of equals or of two people who both have a role in the covenant. Well, that's not the language we've come to understand or expect when we've talked about the Abrahamic covenant in the weeks past. So this is something different. God promising a new covenant, one that he has yet to establish, a two-way covenant. So at God's appearing and saying this, Abraham, Abram here responds as all men do when God appears. He falls on his face. And God, we're told, continues to talk as Abram stays in this position. And he says, if you notice in verse 4, as for me. What he just said is, for my part, Abram, here's what I'm promising. And then he goes on to remind Abram of the first Covenant. Look at the language in verse 4. My covenant is with you. That's present perfect. That's, that's something that's t- currently present and ongoing. That's different than what he said in verse 2, where he says, I will establish. So God's first statement concerning his part is, number one, Abram, remember, we still have a covenant already in place. To be sure that Abram understands God is not changing the first covenant into a new one or replacing the first one with a new one. He's reminding Abram, there is still the first one, and I will do what I said I would do under that covenant. That's God's first statement. He will be a father of a multitude. He will be a father of many nations and so on. That's, that's already in place. And to testify to that one promise, God says in the next series of verses, I'm going to change your name. God is now going to make sure that for Abram's sake, that he will now have a new name, one that echoes for the world to know that this promise exists. Verse 5, he says, You no, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. So in just simple terms, God changed his name so that his name itself says what the covenant that he's already given says. He'll be a father of many nations. But changing names was a common practice when covenants were cut or formed. Two people who entered into a covenant might take a part of each other's name and insert that part into their own name so that they actually change their own name to reflect the covenant, the fact that there was this agreement between them and somebody else. We follow that same practice for the most part still today, don't we? In the marriage covenant, 
the woman traditionally takes the man's name. And for those today who've lost a biblical basis for the marriage from covenant, they have no understanding, they have no appreciation for why that practice was ever done. And so in modern terms, we've made the whole thing seem very misogynistic, very anti-women, without realizing where it came from or why it was ever done in the first place. And by the way, I'm not saying it's a biblical requirement to take their husband's name. I'm not saying that's a requirement. But I'm just saying to understand why it ever took place requires a biblical insight. It was a way of saying, I am in covenant with you. So much so that my identity now is wrapped up in our common identity. My very being can't be separated from this agreement. That's what covenants meant. In ancient terms, a covenant was a lifelong agreement. That if you ever broke it, what was the penalty? Remember walking through the bloody meat? Right? That's why my wife will still tell me today, you're not getting out of this marriage, I'll kill you first. (laughs) She's just being biblical. Seriously, though, in the way covenants were formed, name exchanges were commonly done to reflect this new bond that was lifelong. In the case of Abram and God, look what God just did. He took Abram's name, he split it apart. I want you to imagine this if you can, just pulling apart the letters of the name, and he stuck in the middle of Abram's name a piece of God's own name. You have Abram, becomes Abra, and then the M, the M, gets pushed aside. And in the middle you get What's God's name? Yahweh. Yahweh. The, the breath of God, so to speak, is brought into the middle of Abram's name. So it's Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. She gets the middle of God's name as well. This is God saying to Abram, not that the covenant's being established, that's already happened, but that he wants Abram's life, yea, his very name, to be a testimony to what is true, which is that he is in covenant with the living God. We, by the way, have a somewhat similar, not exactly similar, but somewhat similar opportunity in our own walk today, for we can take the name Christ when we refer to ourselves as Christians which really means in its original form, a little Christ. And we have that possibility of carrying Christ in that way, that name, when we refer to ourselves as Christians. But of course, that just means we have a greater responsibility all the more to carry that name properly. Also, I've seen this practice. You may have seen this too. I work in a company where there are at times many contractors that we hire, and quite a number of them come from overseas, particularly from India. And The Indian culture, the Indian continent, is largely not Christian, though there is a sizable Christian minority there now. But for the most part, it's not. It's Hindu, generally. And when there is a conversion out of that Hindu culture into true faith Christianity, faith-based Christianity, it's not uncommon for them to take their traditional names and change them. I meet a lot of Indians where I work who are Christian, but their first names are Matthew, Moses, Daniel... Peter, why have they taken those names? Not simply because they want to westernize their their name, of course, but rather to reflect their new faith. When you walk in India with the name Matthew, there's no doubting who you are. You have just put a big stamp on yourself within your own culture to announce to anyone who has to know your name, your religious faith. We don't have that as much here, and it's somewhat of a shame, really. Because in their culture, that brings a certain degree of threat and of 
vulnerability and persecution and all the rest, sometimes, depending on where they live. But they take it on, willingly, in the same way that Abram became Abraham here, to make a statement to the world about their faith. I think it's a very powerful lesson. It's one I take very seriously. When I meet these people at work, and they tell me their name, and I hear that, that Christian first name, it just warms my heart. Not only because I know who they are, but because I recognize this is someone who's living their faith in a way that puts them at risk. And when we face those kinds of things, those persecutions, those trials that come upon us because of our faith, James says rejoice in that, knowing that your reward in heaven is great. He says you're going to be a father of a multitude of nations, which means of Israel and of the Gentiles. And he says, I want you to understand this so much that I changed your name. Now then he goes on. And he goes on to tell Abram what further God himself is bound to do by his word. Remember how this whole scene started. He said, as for me, Abram, here's what I've told you I'm going to do, so here's what I'm going to do. He moves forward in that in verse 6. He said, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, as God has said before in his earlier revelations concerning the Abrahamic covenant, he repeats here, I will make you fruitful, I will produce kings and nations from you. And if you skip to verse 8, he also repeats that he will give Abram and his descendants the land in which Abram has been wandering. Now, those are not new. We've heard those. We know those are part of the Abrahamic covenant. We're simply watching God here repeat to Abram, these are things I'm bound to do because I said I would do them. But look in verse 7. In the midst of that, he inserts this new phrase, this new statement where he says, there will be a future covenant between God and Abraham and his descendants. A covenant that is not yet here but is coming. And the one that is coming is not a one-way covenant like the one that already exists. This is a two-way covenant. This will require something of Abraham, or if he does not comply and do his part, then the covenant will be dissolved. We also notice God is weaving these two covenants together now, isn't he? Just in the very fact that verse 6 and 8 talk about the existing covenant, verse 7 talks about this new covenant. He's moving them together so closely now that if we aren't paying attention... We actually would miss the fact that there's two covenants here. We just start seeing it all as the same again. But they're not. We also notice here, one becomes dependent on the other. Look what happens in verse 9 through 14. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you notice that change there? Here's where Abraham gets his part. Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken 
my covenant. Now, you notice there's some changes here from the language we've seen so far in respect to the Abrahamic covenant. There's some new stuff here. This is not the same covenant. He has a choice here. He can obey or he can disobey. Remember the first covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. Were there any obligations placed on Abraham in that covenant? Clearly not. Never once did God lay any requirements on him. In fact, just to prove that point, when the time came to initiate the covenant in the ritual, God put Abraham to sleep so that he couldn't do anything and then made him watch as God did all the work in the ritual. There was no doubt in that process, there was no doubt that Abraham was not to do anything to receive the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. And yet here now there are terms for both parties, as for me, as for you. So that tells us here that we are looking at a different covenant, yet one that is related to the first. Look at what he says Abraham has to do, and by the way, also his descendants. They must agree that male children in the household, all those who are part of the family, will be circumcised. This is not the moment when circumcision was invented. This is not as if this is the moment when the idea was thought up. Circumcision was something practiced in ancient cultures even before this time and outside of Israel. What God did instead was take this practice and give it new meaning according to his purposes. The practice now is required not only of Abraham and his descendants, but even to those who in the household that are brought in and and paid for as servants. And it is to happen on the eighth day of the infant's life. Now, you can see God's handiwork, by the way, in creation when we understand why it was the eighth day that the infant was to be circumcised. The body, human body, needs a certain vitamin, vitamin K, not one you hear much about, but vitamin K, to have proper blood clotting. Now, the reason we don't see vitamin K on the shelves generally uh, is because you don't need to have supplements. Your body produces it naturally and in plenty of, of quantity to do what you need done when it comes time for blood clotting. But at birth, a baby's own production of vitamin K doesn't happen naturally. The baby hasn't been producing it in the womb because it gets its supply from the mother's blood. So initially, as the baby is born, it has very low amounts of vitamin K. And for the first few days of life, that number, that, that level actually begins to drop until the baby's own production kicks in at about the third or fourth day. And then because the levels in the body are so low, the body does what it naturally does. It tries to seek homeostasis. And so it starts ramping up production of vitamin K at a faster than normal rate just to get back up to where it wants to be. But then it overshoots. The body ends up peaking with too much vitamin K in the next few days until it finally settles down and gets to its normal level. Well, where do you think the peak production of vitamin K is in the life of an infant? Day eight. So the day God assigns here for the circumcision moment is the day when the body has the most blood-clotting vitamin in the bloodstream, ensuring the, the best possible outcome when that surgery takes place. You can see God's handiwork there and how he created the body even in that detail. Now let's understand what God is doing here in the covenant itself. First, notice some things. Observation is your friend here. If you observe properly in the text, you'll come to a good understanding. First, notice that this is a covenant that requires Abraham and his descendants to take action, to obey, in other words, or the covenant itself doesn't last. So that tells us, as I've said already, this is a new and different covenant than the Abrahamic covenant. Secondly, the timing of the covenant. It's on the eighth day of life. This clearly tells us this is a cross-generational covenant. This is not a covenant with a person. This is a covenant with a people. 
Because the individual themselves, the person who is being circumcised, is not a party to the discussion, are they? They're not volunteering the process in their own life. They're having it done to them. So this is not a covenant in which the person involved is agreeing to something and by their actions is joining something. It's being done to them. So it's cross-generational. It's about a people group, not about an individual person. That's important. No one enters into this covenant on their own because it happens too early. So, older generations are obedient or not, and whether they are obedient or not determines whether their children participate in the covenant. An obedient parent is ensuring that their children are included in this covenant. A disobedient parent is excluding their children, potentially, from this covenant. So it's cross-generational. It's about continuing a people group, not about what happens in the life of a given person vis-a-vis God. Third, the consequences of failing this covenant are to be cut off from his people. So here again, cross-generational. The term for cut off, by the way, in Hebrew, it literally means to be destroyed, to be killed. So the penalty for failing to observe this covenant is ceasing from being a part of Israel. Ultimately, ceasing to exist in that sense, being cut off, being no longer named as part of Israel. Finally, we notice God says in verse 10 that circumcision is the covenant. He names it. The circumcision itself is the covenant. But then in the next verse, verse 11, God says it will be the sign of the covenant. Now, how can it both be a covenant and be a sign of the covenant? The answer is, God is establishing this new covenant, and this new covenant is a sign of the other covenant. The covenant of circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember that since the fall in the garden, in the story of Genesis, we've been following the seed promise. And the promise was to bring a Messiah to rectify the sin of Adam in the garden. That's been the promise he made in the garden. It's been the promise he's been at work fulfilling. Ultimately, it's fulfilled in the Messiah. But through the first series of Genesis chapters, we've been watching that promise move from one person to the next to the next. From Seth down the line through the the men we've named all the way now to Abraham. It's progressed from one son to another. Finally, it arrives at Abraham. In Abraham, it's taken form. We now understand it better because it's been revealed to Abraham in detail. There would be a people. There would be a land. And from these people would be a blessing to the nations of the world, the seed being Christ. And all nations will be blessed because of this people group. Next, it's going to be bestowed from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, still one son. It's still being moved through single individuals down this line. But what was going to happen after it gets to Jacob? I'm assuming for the most part you know the basic storyline of Genesis. At the point of Jacob, it's no longer one to one. It goes one to twelve. And after that, the twelve become an uncountable number. So who is going to participate in these blessings when it starts to become many and not just one? What determines whether or not you are part of those who are receiving the blessings of the Abrahamic promise? When it used to be just Isaac and then Jacob, it was easy to know. It's Isaac, not Ishmael. It's Jacob, not Esau. But what happens when it's millions of people? Who's in and who's out of this Abrahamic promise? God says it will be those who carry the sign. 
Those who agree to participate through the taking of this sign into their bodies will be counted part of the nation of Israel and as such the recipients of the Abrahamic promise. Now, the Abrahamic promise is not conditional on anything. If you're in, you receive it. If you're not in, you don't receive it, but you don't do anything to get it in terms of the actual promises itself. If you're a part of the nation of Israel by the covenant of circumcision, your family, your blessings are all guaranteed as part of that covenant. That's why Paul taught us in Romans 9, verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. So who will be counted among those who receive the promises? God says the sign of the covenant will be the covenant of circumcision. And those who descend from Abraham and obey that command to be circumcised are counted as part of the first covenant. Those who do not are cut off from that covenant. You remember Moses' experience when he left Midian to go into Egypt to take Israel out? As they're leaving Midian, he and his wife Zipporah, what happens along the way? It's a little moment in the, in the story of Moses, some people may remember. Exodus 4, just three verses. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way, meaning on the way to Egypt, that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses and said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let her alone. God let them alone. At that same time, she said, You are a bridegroom of, bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Because Moses had not circumcised his son as God had commanded, yet he was about to go into Egypt and proclaim himself to be God's representative to the nation of Israel, yet he himself was not letting his own next generation participate in the covenant. God met him on the road and and was ready to kill his son, as was required. And the wife, who was not Jewish, said, okay, if that's what it comes down to, I guess we'll circumcise him. And then she got mad at her husband for the fact that she had to do something that she probably didn't want to do. That's the meaning of this covenant. You're either in or you're out, based on whether you take the sign or not. So God wants his covenant with Abraham to be witness to the nations, and he demands that Israel keep the covenant of circumcision in order to be part of it. But some of you may be wondering in your mind right now, where does salvation fit into this conversation? Chapter 17 is not teaching that obedience was required in order to have the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, because those were based on God's faithfulness alone but only that the entry into the covenant depended on obedience to the covenant of circumcision on a national level. On a national level. Remember, you're circumcising your child. It's not that the child himself is making a decision. It's happening to them. So it was an issue of who would be in Israel versus who was not a part of Israel. It's not a personal issue. Once a person was a party to the Abrahamic covenant, then the blessings were assured to them. But personal salvation is not the issue here. Abraham was counted righteous, remember, by faith in God's promises before he even knew the details, for the most part, of the covenant. Had he refused to take circumcision here, he still would have been saved by his same faith in the earlier covenant. Nevertheless, he observed the second covenant to ensure that the blessings continued on into the next generation for his family's sake, for the nation of Israel's sake. When we come back next week, we're going to complete this conversation, then go through the rest of the chapter and what's going to take place next. Father, I thank you that we do get the chance to study in this way. I thank you that you're the teacher. And I ask, Father, that though the the study today 
has so much more to do that you would help in the days that follow in bringing clarity where I could not and teaching as only you can so that the truth will be made evident. Let us know what we should know and act as we should act according to what you've shown us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.